Mickey Gibson wiped the spit up off Darby's face and then gave her two-year-old daughter a plastic squeaky ball, hoping that would hold her attention for a bit. The girl sat stoically in her playpen, eyeing the toy like it was neither foe nor friend. Gibson had learned in one of the many child development books she had read that two-year-olds should be able to play and entertain themselves for up to 30 minutes. Whoever wrote that was on drugs, or else my kids have no future as adults. Hello, and welcome to Best Seller, where we read and rate the latest book at the top of the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us, and you'll know whether to read it or re-gift it. I'm Barbara. And I'm Brian. Today, we're reviewing Simply Lies by David Baldacci, number one on May 7th, 2023. Before we get to our new number one, what else is happening on the list this week? Besides Simply Lies, three other new books entered the list this week. City of Dreams by Don Winslow, the second book in his new trilogy about mafia activity in Hollywood. Also, It Ends With Us by Colleen Hoover, a huge seller as a trade paperback last August, has just been released in hardback, and it made it onto our list. I hear they've just started filming a movie version with Blake Lively in the lead role. And finally, Where Are the Children Now? by Mary Higgins Clark and Alifair Burke is on the list. This is a follow-up to Clark's iconic 1975 novel, Where Are the Children? Now, Clark died at age 92 over three years ago, so I'm, I'm not sure how she contributed to the writing. Mm, communicating with Burke from beyond the veil. <laughs> so then who would be the ghostwriter, Clark or Burke? <laughs> Very funny. Why not both? <laughs> okay, moving on. Dropping off the list, I Will Find You by Harlan Coben, which we reviewed last episode. That left the list after five weeks. And Countdown by James Patterson and Brendan Dubois left after four weeks. Two books dropped off after just one week on the list. Mm, sad. Yes. The Only Survivors by Megan Miranda only survived one week. <laughs> and Lassiter by J.R. Ward is also one and done. Lassiter, by the way, has the distinction of being the only bestseller so far this year that I have yet to see on the shelf at any of the bookstores I go to. Flies off the shelf too fast for you to spot it? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe stores around here don't want it, and it's, it's all about online sales. Who knows? Let's talk about our new number one. Okay, what do we know about the author? David Baldacci was born in 1960 and grew up in Richmond, Virginia. He got a JD, which is a Juris Doctor, mm -hmm. and practiced law in Washington, D.C. for nine years. Another lawyer turned writer. Yeah, more fun, less stress. I get it. <laughs> okay. Since 1996, Baldacci has published over 50 novels, mostly suspense and legal thrillers for adults, but also a few fantasy novels for young adults and some children's books. He and his wife, Michelle, started the Wish You Well Foundation in 2002, an organization supporting adult literacy programs. He began writing his first novel, Absolute Power, while still practicing law. That book was immediately made into a big-budget Hollywood movie directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Eastwood and Gene Hackman. Absolute Power has just a 52% audience approval mm. score on Rotten Tomatoes. We've seen that recently. What did you think? Well, I would fall into the 48% of the audience who wouldn't recommend seeing it. I didn't think it held up well. Yeah, I agree. But still, fun to see Hackman's overacting paired with Eastwood's... Um, underacting? Yeah, that was fun. Hackman knows how to chew the scenery. Definitely. So, Baldacci is represented by Aaron Priest of the Aaron Priest Literary Agency. He writes standalone novels as well as 
quite a few series characters. Mm-hmm. He's got a series of a series about former Secret Service agents, one about a former army ranger, another about a skilled government assassin. Also, he's developed a series about a football player, Amos Decker, who gets injured on his very first play, okay. and from that injury develops extraordinary mental powers that come in very useful as a detective. <laughs> See, that's the positive side to all those NFL concussions. The media never seems to want to talk about that. Ooh, no comment. Anyway, <laughs> Simply Law is, is published by Grand Central. It has a 60% female readership. Okay. It's 416 pages. The audiobook is 11 hours and 45 minutes. And it's read by Lisa Flanagan and Corey Carthew, one female and one male reader. And that seems to work really well. So Simply Lies is a standalone, at least for now. <clears throat> I imagine if it does well, Belle Dachi will be off and running with another series character. That's kind of how it works. <laughs> that new series character being... Mickey Gibson. She's a former police officer and forensic tech turned computer nerd. She works for a private investigation firm, ProEye, searching for deadbeat billionaires. She uses her computer skills to track down the assets rich people hide so they don't have to pay their bills or their tax debts. She's got two children, a two-year-old daughter, Darby, and a three-year-old son, Tommy. We heard about that in the opener. No father in the picture. He ran out on uh, Mickey and the kids before the novel starts. Mickey works from her home office. She has a nanny who comes in two or three days a week to help with the kids. Her parents also pitch in with the kids. At the beginning of the novel, Mickey Gibson gets a call, purportedly from work, asking her to go out to an old foreclosed mansion and do an inventory on its contents. The call turns out to be fake. What she finds in the mansion is a dead body in a hidden back room. The man was murdered, poisoned after being tied to a chair. Yeah, it's a good opening. The dead man is Harry Langhorn, a former mob accountant for a New Jersey crime family. He, his wife, and two children, Douglas and Francine, have been living under assumed names for decades, initially under the protection of the Witness Protection Program, but later they're all just scattered. Uh, Who knows where they live or what their identities are. This murder of Langhorn has nothing directly to do with Mickey Gibson or with her employer, but she gets drawn into the case mainly because she begins receiving calls from a strange, unidentified woman known as Clarice. Clarice alternately goads and threatens Mickey into trying to solve the murder. Clarice also helps Mickey with the case, doling out little tips and suggestions along the way. We don't know who Clarice really is or why she's acting like this. But interestingly, a good number of the chapters, I'd say maybe a third, are told from Clarice's point of view. And we're shown through that that she's a very skilled con artist, adept at disguising herself in a range of identities as she hops around the globe, scamming gullible rich men for millions of dollars at a pop. A second murder occurs. A middle-aged recluse named Daryl Oxblood is found with his throat cut. And we know this is connected to the first because in both cases, there's a slogan hand-painted on the wall by the body. Do as I say, not as I do. Also, Mickey and Clarice gradually come to believe that the first murder victim, the mob accountant, Langhorn, squirreled away something like half a billion dollars before his death. That's with a B? Yes, billion. So a lot of Jack. And a lot of the people in the book, the police officers, the bad guys, Mickey and Clarice themselves, of course, very interested in being the first to get their hands on this treasure. So do we ever find out who killed Langhorn and Oxblood? Does Mickey learn who Clarice really is and why she's involved in all of this? Or figure out where the half billion is hidden? More importantly, does she find someone to change the kids' diapers while she's off treasure hunting? (laughs) So you have to read Simply Lies to find out. As we did. So let's talk about what we thought. So our first review category, as always, is grip 
and grab. Did it pull you in and keep you there? What'd you think? Grip and grab was not strong for me on this one. Mm -hmm. I found her struggle with her children real. It is very difficult to try to concentrate on something important and also um, handle your two young kids on your own. There were parts of that that didn't seem quite authentic. So you didn't get pulled into the crime investigation that much either? It wasn't believable to me Hmm. that the Mickey Gibson character would be able to be convinced by this scam. Like, I picked it up as a scam pretty quick. Uh, And I I didn't know why she wasn't more suspicious. So what did you give Grip and Grab in the end? I think I gave it a 1.5. I actually gave it a 1, which is not as low as a 0, but... The frustration for me with this book was not that I wasn't pulled in. I'm kind of used to that at this point. It was that I I spent a lot of energy trying to figure out why. Like, why am I not pulled in? Mm. You know, I I try to be sympathetic to these writers, how hard it is to write a a really good book. For sure. So this is what I came up with. I found the victims themselves, the murder victims, not to be that sympathetic. Ah. So we don't know anything about them, and we gradually learn about them, and they're just kind of low-life bad guys. One of the two main point of view characters, Clarice, is a cipher. It it was hard to get pulled into her because there's so little we know about her at first. The worst thing about being pulled in was Mickey Gibson. Like you said, she doesn't know why she's investigating this case. She never takes a firm stand on why she's doing all this work. That doesn't help me as a reader to get pulled into her project. Her motivation seemed lacking, maybe. And then the last thing I came up with The resolutions at the end were entirely unconvincing. And one of them, and we don't do spoilers in this podcast, so I'll just say that when one of the bad guys is taken down, it was wrapped up in one short chapter through a tactic that I just couldn't believe at all. So the resolutions also failed to draw me in. So I gave this category a one. That's not good news. You're entitled. (laughs) I'm entitled in my opinion. Yes, you are. The next category is equally important. He got flair. How's the writing style of David Baldacci? I mean, I gave it a similar score to my grip and grab score. 1.5. I did. So this was the first book in our podcast that I listened to. um, Actually, I listened to while I was on a flight to and from Seattle. So I so I didn't read it. So So the whole thing was listened to, not read. Yes, this entire book was listened to, not read by me. And what I noticed was it was rather meandering. It Mm. wasn't crisp. It wasn't clean. It wasn't clear. It didn't drive. It kind of wound around. Are there any examples? You know, here's one. She sat down at her kitchen table and stared at the reassembled phone before looking down at the butcher block table she'd bought from Wayfair with a signing bonus from ProEye. It just it just kind of meanders around the kitchen and and there's and why. Yeah. I don't I don't like care for that sentence either. I gave his writing style a 2 and he did remind me of some of the other writers that we've looked at this year which is it's fine. I can follow the story, but he's not grabbing me with the the quality of his prose. And some of his writing is just weak. Here's a couple examples. She was on a bed with her arms and legs tied to the bedpost. The smell here was not pleasant. (laughs) Well, that tells me very little about the smell, except it wasn't pleasant. (laughs) What was the smell? Or some of it was just silly. Like, $50 million is what he told me when we met. A drop in the bucket to a guy like him. And, you know, my reaction to that... $50 $50 million is not a drop in the bucket to anybody. <laughs> That's just silly. And, and it should be fixed in editing. So I gave his, his flair two out of five. Got it. Beam me up. This is the world building part 
of the novel. And I, I thought it was promising, you know, the witness protection program. That could have been interesting, but, you know, it was handled superficially. Also, the digital forensics, that's her specialty. Very promising, but handled very shallow, like Baldacci is dabbling, not really digging. And there, I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Here's a sentence. You would be hard-pressed to name a topic that you couldn't find something out about online. <laughs> there was a YouTube video about every conceivable thing a human had ever done or would ever attempt to do. Um, <laughs> my kids were saying that 15 years ago. <laughs> I know YouTube is impressive. Okay, so you get it. I, it's, I do, I get it. And then there's another example where he, when he's talking about Bitcoin. Even though it seemed that Bitcoin had been around since the Roman Empire, it had only been created in 2008. <laughs> Once you registered an account and took possession of your coins, which weren't really coins, but digital assets. I'm like, okay, who thinks that Bitcoin's been around since the Roman Empire? Uh, nobody. Um, so one of the things that I did feel like was more tightly written or a little more interesting were the scams that Clarice would run. There was one in particular where they, she was working with another mm. agent and shaking down a politician. And that was very, yeah, that was good. That, that was good writing. Yeah. I was pulled in. I liked the world of her, her scamming, but that was only the first part of the book. And then that yeah. was dropped. Yeah, it never really went anywhere. What did you think about his world building with respect to her parenting? That's like, I think, a big part of this book. It's interesting for a man... I think, to be writing a woman who's got two little kids. What do you think about that? I mean, the struggle is real, and I give him credit for trying to uh -huh. trying to show that there is a struggle and yeah. trying to show some it, it, concrete examples of how hard the struggle is, but I don't think he really achieved it. It is maddening, the, the actual struggle. It was superficial. I mean, think about uh, lessons in chemistry that we read earlier in the year, the huge bestseller this year, and how detailed and deep and real she got with the struggles. This is superficial, in my opinion. Mostly the kids do something either annoying or cute, and then Mickey drops them off with the nanny or with their parents over and over again. And it's like, okay, you tried, but I didn't really learn anything about what it's like to be a single mother trying to run a big case. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if there had been a way to develop the kids, even as young as they were, into characters themselves and to have to feel some of the poignancy of being torn between being their mother and doing this investigation. But again, we don't even know why she's really doing this investigation at first. And so well, there's that. It, so the tension that could have been there wasn't. Before we move on to the next category, let's use this as a place to put an audio example and so so we've got an example here where mickey is confronting one of the big bad guys in the novel let's listen you asked to meet he prompted her you said you had some information that might be useful to me she nodded i do normally i would have ignored the request and you wouldn't be sitting there i had you checked out of course ms peters but it's all bullshit. Why let me in if you can't confirm who I am? I could be a threat. There are six guns pointed at you right now from inconspicuous holes in the walls. You can't see them, nor can I. But they're still there. You'll never feel a thing. At least they tell me that. I have no personal experience, you understand. But maybe you don't believe me. On cue... She heard, one after the other, six gun slides being racked. Impressive, she said demurely. 
So there you hear Mickey in action. Yeah, that's a good example. I and I remember this scene, and I remember um, I thought the the audio book was done very well. Yeah, me too. So let's look at our next category: new best friends, the characters in the book. What do you think about the the main characters and the minor characters? Well, as I said earlier, I, I, I feel like the, the children could have been developed into a bit more of their characters. I didn't feel like Mickey... I struggled with understanding her authenticity a little bit. Mm. In the end, I feel like I sort of got there. Like, by the time we got to the end, I, I really felt I understood her a little better. But she wasn't my new best friend. But I did appreciate sort of the arc of the um, of the con artist that she was working with. I thought that was some of the revelations were interesting. <laughs> well, that's interesting because maybe the maybe the series character is not Mickey Gibson, but Clarice. Because <laughs> I again, I sometimes struggle to figure out why something doesn't work for me. Mickey Gibson did not draw me in. If if I heard there was another novel with her, I would not be interested. He actually deliberately wrote her as weak, mm. and that that's a risky maneuver. Uh, here's a sentence from the book as a mother of two little kids with their athletic and cop days behind her she felt small and unsure and vulnerable so she's small and unsure and vulnerable well the longer she's unsure the harder it is for me as a reader to get drawn in we talked about Mm. that before Mm -hmm. some of the way that she's written is almost generic do you remember the scene where uh, i'll just read it she glanced down at his hand I don't see a wedding band, but I know a lot of cops who don't wear them on the job. She actually says that out loud. Mm-hmm. She's meeting this cop for the first time. He throws that in, doesn't develop it. Yeah, and it's almost like, okay, where did that go, Mick? <laughs> so then another example. I'll just read an example of how she is with her kids, and you can you can judge whether this is deep or, or shallow. Darby was in the stroller, and Tommy was walking next to his mother. It was a brisk morning, and the sun was ascending into a cloudless sky. Tommy would occasionally hold his mom's hand or walk right next to the stroller and talk to Darby, who talked right back to him in childish staccato. So in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. It sort of is indicative of his, of his writing style as a whole. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not, it's not scintillating. It's not snappy. And it's not even all that deep. Mm-hmm. It feels generic to me. Like this could be any mom and any kids. I, I agree with that. There was one little thing that he drew out in terms of a little bit of tension between Mickey and her mom. She snagged a couple of fries, bit into one and almost purred. I've been trying to cut this stuff out and lose some of the baby weight, but it's harder than I thought it would be, as my mother loves to point out. I mean, that I, I've seen that um, dynamic between mothers and daughters before, and I think that's um, that, right. that was authentic. Another example where there's nothing wrong with it, it, it she's just not that distinctive in to mm-hmm. me. So let's talk about perhaps the biggest category of review. But which wait, is, mm-hmm. I gave that a two. Okay, you gave that, sorry, I, you gave it a two, new best friend, so did I. There you Thank go. you. Mm-hmm. All the feels, that emotional reaction to the book, kind of a big deal, what'd you? Yeah, so I it, it didn't, like this was sort of missing for me. I, I didn't have a big emotional reaction to the book. I wasn't mm. connected to the mom. I, I didn't even know enough about the kids to really like them. I And I like kids, like don't get me wrong. But um, I didn't, I felt like maybe I was more sympathetic in the end towards the con artist, which is a little <laughs> odd. It's not my way, usually. And so um, it didn't have all the feels. Now, there did get some momentum towards the end, and I did feel some build, and I did want mm. to finish in the end. Um, there was a little bit of a momentum. Similar for me, and I, I actually gave this category a one. It looks in my notes like you also gave it a one. Is that I right? I gave it a one. So that's pretty... That's not a great score. And and most of 
the reason why I didn't react emotionally to this book was because of what we've already talked about. The characters were fairly weak. The plotting was unconvincing. And I wanted to say it felt to me like he did not write an outline and then he didn't go back and edit. So uh-huh. like he, he, there's literally threads that are brought up in the first half of the book that are never brought back. Like when she sort of is romantically interested in that cop, doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Also, the treasure hunt just comes out and, and then all of a sudden that sort of takes over the drive. It was very confusing yeah. and unconvincing. This book could have really benefited from some serious editing, not just of you know copy editing, but the storytelling. Yeah. But I wanted to bring up one other thing that detracted from the book's impact, which we haven't talked about, which was just some blatant mistakes. Mm. I'll give you an example. I'll read this. The lady had a portfolio of roughly 8,000 companies for which she was the registered agent. She charged $50 a year to be the agent. She made about 40000 a year. Did you catch what's wrong with that? Uh, yeah. 50 times 8,000 is not 40000 It's 400000 She's making a little better than she thought. So, <laughs> so please edit your work. Another, these are small examples, but they add up. Mm -hmm. She took out her laptop and inserted the thumb drive in the dongle. A dongle is not a port. (laughs) A dongle is a thing you insert into the port. Please. (laughs) You know, we're paying $30 for these novels. Well, yeah. They add up. Precision is important. So there was another example that I noticed. Um, So it said she had emailed Zeb Brown about her job status. At least she now had an email trail if it came to a lawsuit. Mm. Virginia was a right-to-work state, but still, she wasn't going down without a fight. So right-to-work means a law prohibiting union security agreements, which require contributions from members. At-will employment is what he's talking about. At-will means the employer can terminate employee for any reason at any time. Ohio is also an at-will state. Okay, so let me be clear. One or two mistakes in a book is not going to knock me off course. Sure. It's the cumulative. It's when the plotting could have used some editing. It's when words like dongle could have used some editing. Mixing up right-to-work and what was the other one? At Employment well. at will. Mm-hmm. You know, it does have a cumulative impact and takes away the emotional possibilities of the book. So neither of us had a strong emotional reaction to this book. And when you add up all of our scores... Well, I gave that category a one. Yeah, we both gave it a one. Uh, we end up with a 15 divided by 10, 10 scores, 1.5. That puts it right in between a one and a two. Indeed. Now, interestingly, this is not the lowest scored book of the year for us. It's the seventh out of eight. Our least favorite author so far, or book rather, I should say, is J.D. Robb's Encore and Death, which only scored 1.15. So right now, Baldacci is second to the, to the bottom. Uh, but looking as we usually do at the scores that are out there he got a 4.3 on amazon and a 4.1 on goodreads not bad but we're used to that yeah (laughs) all right well thanks for joining us we'll see you next episode when we review happy place by emily henry until then keep dreaming keep flying keep laughing keep crying and don't stop until you've read them all